Thanks, Major Lee. Uh, <laughs> welcome one and all uh, to this uh, session. I'm, uh, I'm going to try and do the impossible, uh, which is basically to um, talk about 100 years of Irish history uh, in about uh, 15 minutes, uh, then pause and then turn to the poems in, in, in the handout. Uh, and before I finish, uh, even if you're all fast asleep, I will be reading to that back wall uh, an extract from a wonderful novel by a young Irish uh, novelist called Paul Murray. Uh, the novel is called Skippy Dies. Um, and the subtext of the novel is uh, Robert Graves' uh, Goodbye to All That and how that... Uh, uh, memoir sits inside the lives of young upper middle class Dublin brats uh, and uh, being led by their teacher uh, into um, Island Bridge which is uh, a commemorative centre uh, for World War I uh, the uh, Irish soldiers who died during World War I uh, and it's the discussion that the teacher has with the headmaster, uh, or the acting headmaster, uh, towards the end of the novel, which I'm going to read to you. Uh, it's comic and tragic at the same time, um, but it's, I think it's very revealing of one of the issues that troubles me uh, when I start talking about war poetry. Uh, and I think, uh, following on from some of the, uh, uh, the points that have developed over yesterday and today, um, it, it might be no bad thing for us to do a little bit of self-scrutiny uh, on what this subject is. I don't mean navel-gazing, uh, uh, but to, to try and deconstruct a little, perhaps a little bit more rigorously what we mean when we talk about war poetry and the fact that it is a constructed thing um, and that there are problematical territories around it um, that may, may be useful to, to articulate. Uh, and, uh, and analyze. But before I go into the kind of um, uh, the intellectual issues of this, I'd like to just to give you two simple little anecdotes uh, which I think illustrate um, um, some of the issues that are under the surface of what I've got to say uh, uh, this afternoon. The first is about the genesis of this anthology, and this be the book. Um, Earth Voices Whispering, an anthology of Irish war poetry, 1914 to 1945. It was published in 2008. Um, what's so special about such a book? There is one simple fact. It was the first of its kind. The fact that I put it together is neither here nor there. But it was the first of its kind published in 2008. You think about uh, the 90 years uh, between the end of World War I and uh, uh, its 90th anniversary, and you begin to see how come, why that. Uh, and that's an issue which I'm going to address uh, in a minute or two. The other point I want to uh, uh, refer to is that um, this book came about as a result of Francis Ledwich and 
uh, Ledwich's uh, reputation, his presence, uh, was quite popular back in the, uh, uh, in the turn of the last century. He was a known poet. He was a recognized poet before he went to war. Uh, and uh, his early death uh, as a soldier uh, didn't close out his reputation. It just moved it from being a British reputation, or a reputation which was known in Britain, to being an Irish poet. And his connection to the war was turned down. He was read as being an Irish pastoral poet who happened almost to die at war. And that's a lesson uh, which uh, I'll, I'll come back to. The changing fortunes of Irish poets during and after World War I uh, and the kind of contentious world that their reputation entered into. Um, it, it's, a, it's a strange story in itself. I gave the, uh, a lecture in 2004 uh, on Francis Ledwich uh, in Slane in County Meath. Um, it's an annual Ledwich uh, lecture. And rather boldly, having read through his work, um, and indeed read around his life and a very interesting man I'll talk a little bit about him when uh, we come to him in a minute or two I felt he was a heroic individual uh, a man who uh, grew up with very very strong uh, political commitments to nationalism trade unionism uh, uh, um, a very strong uh, sense of social justice civic rights um, and there was something grand about the way in which he took on his own education, a local education, uh, started to publish, write poems, publish poems, write plays, um, and then make this very deliberate, very deliberate decision to join uh, the British Army. But in this course of this lecture, I made the point that why was it that Ledwich and all these other men who had fought, who were Irish men, who were nationalists, many of them very committed nationalists who had fought in British army uniforms, what happened to them after uh, the war was over? Their stories. And I said, rather boldly, in a rhetorical moment, I said, in fact, wouldn't it be great if we brought all their work together into an anthology? Bad move, Jerry. <laughs> Because the next thing was, the Irish Times picked up this. It was in the paper. And I started to get letters in from people whose uncles, fathers, grandfathers had written the poem about the war. And I still have the... Actually, I don't. They're in Boston now. Uh, I had gathered them all together. And then I realised, of course, put up or shut up. So I actually started to put together this anthology. It's not just about World War I. It actually is about... The Irish resistance to the British uh, rule in Ireland, uh, the War of Independence, the Civil War, uh, the Spanish Civil War. Um, it stops at 1945, um, but it is a long period of a tranche of Irish poetry about war. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate just on the first kind of quadrant of the book. And then what I want to do, if we have time, uh, and you're not all fast asleep, uh, I, I'm actually going to fast forward and have a look at three poems, three retrospective poems. Uh, one by uh, John Hewitt, 
uh, very fine, uh, perhaps little-known poet these days. Uh, a short poem by uh, Michael Longley, and conclude uh, with a, a poem by Seamus Heaney, which is related to this image behind me. Um, those three retrospective poems uh, are important as individual poems themselves. I won't go into them in any great detail, alas. But what I want to do is I want to illustrate something for you. And this is, this is what I want to illustrate. There is a thing, a tradition, called war poetry. But it's the idea of war and its release into a culture which I find particularly fascinating. How does a war become refrigerated? How does a piece of history get taken out of a story? And how does it get then reinserted? Well, in a way, monuments are physical, uh, physical poems, physical stories. They tell how a people commemorate their past. This is exactly what poems do. But what happens if a monument is blown up or removed? What if it's neglected or, in a way, shunned? How do you re-inscribe that monument, that piece of commemoration, into a narrative, a cultural or national narrative? And in many ways, what struck me as I was going through this anthology, preparing, uh, bringing together this very wide range, diverse range of material was that it, I almost felt that I was like Pip going into Satis House in Great Expectations and opening the door and stumbling in to seeing a cobwebbed table and these rooms all locked up with owls moving in and out. Uh, it seemed as if I had re-entered into a piece of history which had been closed down. So I wanted, what I wanted to do was I wanted to open the windows, open the doors and say, hey, it's yours too. Uh, and generally the reaction was positive, but uh, uh, on, on occasion it wasn't. That's the first point I want to make, that the anthology came out of um, a, a sort of a, a foolhardy gesture. But then I kind of ended up being committed to that. It, it wasn't my instinct to go there, um, to do such a book. It was a random, arbitrary moment. Uh, and look where it got me. Uh, with the book done, uh, and it's there. But I'm not a historian, of, uh, a military historian. I'm not even really a critic of war, poetry or war literature. The second thing also is, uh, uh, connects autobiographically to this wider story I want to um, uh, describe for you today. Three years after I gave that lecture, I was asked to be a judge for a, a, a fiction award called Impact, based in Dublin. And uh, one of the novels that was... And this is a very interesting uh, award. It's nominated by librarians, not by literary critics or the, the book trade. And one of the books that was nominated uh, quite extensively, both in Ireland and elsewhere, throughout America and different places, 
was Sebastian Barry's novel called A Long, Long Way. It's on your secondary reading list, so um, uh, I've suggested for you guys who want to go on and check out more of this stuff, that's a base you have to touch, you have to read that novel. But part of the brief as being a judge was to actually meet a sample group, dreaded term, a sample group of readers who had nominated this book. Are you with me? So we went to the mansion house and I had my Sebastian Barry group sitting there, uh, about 35 or 40 of them. And part of the deal was we engaged with them in conversation. Why did you nominate this book and blah, blah, blah. So I actually went in and said, uh, you know, I'm very delighted to hear you've nominated an Irish book for this award called Sebastian Barry, A Long, Long Way. Why? And without exception, this is 2007, without exception, each of those 35 to 40 men and women, mostly women, said that the reason why they nominated Sebastian Barry's A Long, Long Way was because it had opened the door on their own family history of their father or grandfather or great uncle or uh, a, a, a distant relative who had fought in World War I and whose reputation or whose lives had been in some manner or another overlooked. They didn't talk about being in the war. Whereas this novel authorised or permitted uh, them to think and talk and exchange and have a conversation about this family member being in the war. So there's a dimension when we talk about Irish poets and World War I, which is about family. It's a very, very intimate and troubled piece of history. Um, and uh, one of the things that I discovered as I was putting this together is that you were actually treading on great tenderness uh, and anxiety um, about uh, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean when I come to actually uh, we look at a couple of poems of Francis Ledwich of the division and the divisiveness that uh, the Irish experienced uh, uh, post World War I in how to deal with the reality of that war um, so what, what, I'm trying, what I'm going to try and do for the, uh, say, um, ten, 10 minutes or so is to actually step us into that history and then step back out of it again and look at some of the poems. And this uh, image behind uh, will uh, uh, look over all I've got to say um, uh, in, in, in more ways than one. So... My experience of putting this anthology together will run parallel to much of what uh, has been alluded to uh, in the last couple of days and probably tomorrow as well. But I just want to put a few questions to you, almost like spinning saucers. And every so often I'll tweak it again just to keep it going. Um, And they are these. How how World War I is indelibly linked to the narrative of of state selfhood of national identity and how that lodges itself in your self-consciousness as readers, as scholars as writers 
the relationship between that core self-understanding as a person from England or Wales or Scotland, France, Germany, how that sense of state selfhood, of national identity, becomes destabilized um, when other elements are brought into play, other challenging or destabilizing categories, such as race, ethnicity, gender, and quite clearly class, a word we haven't, which surprised me, heard so much about. Now, everything I'm going to say today is not trying to plead a special case. All I want to do is I want to use the Irish experience as a kind of laboratory for these wider frames of reference. What I've got to say, is it representative or is it not? Is there something else that we have to be talking about when we talk about the poetry of Bing Bing British poetry? Now, the more conventional and customary view in Ireland, right? Let's just step out of here and we're in Dublin. The more conventional customary view in, in Ireland was that World War I was England's war and that we had Easter 1916. Um, Easter 1916 was ours. Now, of course, it's nonsense. But that was and survived ideologically for quite some time from the, 19, from the 1920s through the Second World War and into the 50s and 60s. And if anybody feels a dissertation coming on, <laughs> there is a, a, um, a period of time, round about the late 60s and early 70s, when that ideological position started to corrode and be re revised. And the writers, Michael Longley, Jennifer Johnson, J.G. Farrell, um, others, James Plunkett, were in the, the driving seat of that intellectual change. Uh, and perhaps due deference has not been given to the writers on that score. That's one for me anyway. Um, the other sort of thing that I'm interested in, uh, and I'm fascinated by Stuart's uh, anatomizing of anthologies and the kind of graphic uh, information, quite literally, we're getting off that, um, that reputations come and go. That's the nature of literature, of fashion, and so on. But when you actually, if you can think back to one of the, anth the uh, uh, graphics that we got about the movement of anthologies and the poets inside, um, I'm curious to this day that Irish poets some of whom I've given you are in your hymn sheet, uh, that they, they don't appear. They just... Uh, John Stallworthy's uh, uh, is the honourable exception. Um, uh, the, the, the anthology um, uh, Anthem for Dead uh, Youth um, in the 1980 or, or, or when it was. It's in the, it's in the bibliography. Um, uh, now, I'm not saying, well, we ain't there. We want to be. I'm not saying it in any kind of grieve way of grievance. I'm just saying that it is interesting 
that the, uh, when Ireland stepped out of the Union, their poets stepped with them in many ways. Uh, and that uh, the, the, the visibility of these writers seemed to disappear from war anthologies, even though Francis Ledwidge appears in Siegfried Sassoon's memoirs, and they record his, de- he, his death is recorded. So he was part of the, uh, of the, of the, of the lexicon. So what I'm saying is, in a slightly kind of uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek way, I want to read some of these poems back into the canon of war poetry, but also to remind you that there should be another figure or image behind me looking over my shoulder. And his name is William Butler Yeats. Because everything I'm about to say, he abominated. And uh, in a way, as uh, uh, the previous conversation uh, of the last session ended with, Yeats is our, uh, uh, the, the one figure who ideologically, intellectually, and artistically challenges, challenged everything that we're here to do. In many ways, he is uh, anti-war poetry. In the sense, and I'm going to, you, I'll, 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 I'll give you some chapter and verse on this, that not only uh, was Yeats um, challenging uh, Wilfred Owen by casting him out, he actually challenges the very precepts upon which we've been thinking and talking a lot about, that there is such a concept or construct as war poetry. Also, by way of a kind of slightly mischievous quality in me, I want to ask a question about the Anglo-centricity of war poetry and the way in which the national identity of England, uh, or you can stretch that almost, but not quite, to Britain, plays such a defining point in our understanding of this war uh, in, forms of, in forms of remembrance and of commemoration. So uh, I'm bothered by that. And I'm bothered by who belongs to the Great War um, other than the families historically connected to it. Why do we embrace World War I as, uh, I think, uh, Mark, was the, the quote for this modern military scripture? Um, why embrace a grotesque war as a defining point of national self-worth? And finally, in these spinning saucers, the other point I'd like to make is about the generational aspect of World War One as a subject. Um, and that will take me right back to Skippy Dies and this young Dublin <coughs> novelist, Trinity graduate called Paul Murray, writing about how a teacher re-engages a generation with this global experience. So, all in the space of 20 minutes. Uh, we're off. Um, I, I want to step into this subject by reading perhaps 
um, uh, something that would be characteristic to your ear. Uh, and then um, just give you a few more notes about some statistics and then we go into the poems. And then uh, if you want, we can have a conversation uh, if, unless you've had enough by that stage. Stuart Parker, uh, the generation of Michael Longley, uh, Derek Mahan, Seamus Heaney, um, Seamus Dean, um, published in the Irish Times in 1970. Again, if you're interested, look at the date, 1970. It chimes through this work so much, the changing of self-perception in Ireland about the war. He wrote a very interesting piece <coughs> called An Ulster Volunteer. Now, I won't read it all. It's too long. But I do want to read you into uh, just a little bit of it because this is the standard vision of an Ulster Protestant view of World War I by one of our leading, alas, no longer with us, playwrights, who is also a poet. He's talking about his own grandfather, and he says, My own grandfather was three, year, three years old when Lord Randolph Churchill played the orange card and the Unionist Party was born. He was ten when Gladstone introduced his second Home Rule, home rule Bill, and he was 29 when he signed the Ulster Covenant in the Belfast City Hall. Politically, I should think of him as an honest Protestant working man, deluded and exploited by the Orange and Tory gentry and their military-industrial complex. But it isn't easy to think politically of your grandfather. <laughs> he was a small man, spry and upright, uh, but forced to shuffle it a little by the enormous wounds in his thighs and calves. He chuckles a lot, says hospital and thriving for dreaming. He is shy, proud and alone. All of his life he has thought of Roman Catholics as a feared and deadly enemy. When I quiz him about the past, I feel like a hapless, insatiable detective cross-examining the victim of a vast crime. The leg wounds were decorations in, awarded in the vicinity of the Passchendaele Ridge and Hellfire Corner. They killed a football career which had started with a local team in Ormo Park and gone on to playing for Glen Torren, East Belfast team, and for Ireland. This is pre-partition. But there was no bitterness at this loss. Playing for the Glens and getting the Hun on the run were just two aspects of community. Going to church, marching on the 12th, and joining the Ulster Volunteer Force were three, uh, with th were three others. He then tells a st story about uh, his grandfather involved with the UVF uh, and, uh, in April uh, 1914, and he describes uh, their furtive activities on the political front. He then goes on and describes what his grandfather was reading, Samuel Smiles, Thrift and Self-Help. It's a very tender, emotional piece respecting this man who politically would have been quite uh, distinct from Parker's own views. The citizen armies of the South must have been filled with identical recruits. I imagine, too, that the old volunteers had a Kiplinesque sense of romance and honour and valour, and that this was the emotional baggage that they carried into the carnage towards which their imperial masters directed them. So just try and imagine this. The northern boys 
uh, Protestant in the main, but also many Catholics, moving uh, out of the north through Belfast and uh, uh, to Liverpool and so on. All the young, similar aged men from similar backgrounds in Dublin, in Cork, Connemara, in Wicklow, in Meath, moving in the same direction. Those in the north, generally of a unionist dispensation, thinking that way. Those in the south, not, not thinking of union, possibly from mild to rabid nationalism, but all donning the British army uniform. The division went to the front, western front, straddled the river, uh, as, uh, and on July 1st fought its first battle. Official accounts report that the men were conscious of the significance of the date, the anniversary of the Boyne, that they shouted, no surrender, going over the top, that some even wore orange sashes. Such stories may be true, that it's also true that their uh, propagation serves a familiar purpose. What is incontrovertible, of course, is that the Battle of the Somme was one of the most appalling slaughterhouses in human history, that five and a half thousand Ulster men were butchered in the 36 hours of their fighting, many of them Catholics, and that all the ground they won was later retaken. My grandfather missed all that. Before the division had left England for France, he had been ordered back to the Sirocco works where he worked. Uh, the war machine demanded munitions, but in 1917 he was recalled back into the army. He had forgotten the names of the battles. What he remembers is the rifle springing out of his hands when the shell exploded near him, the two corpses in the trench beside whom he was placed, the awful noise of the support artillery passing over his head, the officer who covered him with a jerry coat because he was shivering, at the dressing table uh, station, the surgeon left him till the end, taking him for a German on account of the coat. He remembers the matron who walked down the ward one morning, pointing at various men and saying, you're for Blighty, you're for Blighty, you're for Blighty. And they were slid down a chute into a deafening hold of a cattle boat. He remembers waking up, howling out of a dream one night in the hospital at Cardiff, and the Scots amputee beside him saying, my God, Pat, I thought they were on top of us again. And he remem remembers asking to, asking to be transferred to the UVS hospital in Belfast and being surprised that the doctor had never heard of it. Wearing carpet slippers, just listen to this image, wearing carpet slippers with blood oozing through his dressings, he somehow made it to Liverpool and got the boat to Belfast to his wife and seven children. Now, that story is identical to many uh, that you can come across in the, in the public offices of Northern Ireland. And you could read those from the late 20s and 30s onwards. Not so in the Republic. In what was the free state and now the Republic. So when I talk about Irish poetry, I'm, on, I, I'm not on the same ground. You have to make adjustments because I'm having to change from one perspective when I'm dealing with the North to another when I'm dealing with the South. It's not the one story. It's a complicated picture. Now, I'm not going to keep you here until 7.30, so I'm just going to have to park that and move on. So when we talk about um, an anthology of Irish war poetry, these poets are talking to themselves inside this book. They are actually exchanging conversations about the kind of story that I've just read to you. 
The actual reality is that the two separate states in, in Ireland, on the island of Ireland, weren't until comparatively recently. Point one. His father was one of the lucky ones. His grandfather was one of the lucky ones. I just want to remind you of the extent to this so that you, those of you who don't know will know exactly the rough parameters, not exactly, the rough parameters of how many people were actually engaged in war from an Irish background. Now, this is as slippery as mercury because what about the families that were living here uh, in England, did they declare their Irishness uh, when they uh, joined the army? Um, what about those nurses who had been were uh, involved in the medical world before and just moved in, and may have been uh, in that tradition of Irish women who moved to England uh, as nur- to become nurses? So there's a health warning with these statistics, but. The best estimate for recruitment in Ireland, in Ireland, after mobilisation, suggests that the British Army secured 134,000 men. The Navy and the Naval Reserve, over 6,000, and the Air Force, 4,000. That suggests that Ireland's male contribution to the wartime forces of World War I was somewhere around 210,000. The participation of over 200,000 Irishmen was proportionately the greatest deployment of armed manpower in the history of Irish militarism. So let's get this right from the start. The Irish were involved big time in World War I. And when you think historically, that was the largest recruitment of Irish men in any war. So, this should put uh, to bed the uh, rather silly anecdote or notion that the Irish were furtively involved. Uh, uh, This was a substantial commitment. Uh, And if I had time, I would read you some of the the images, uh, the memoirs of um, the the mass going in Dublin uh, uh, as uh, the uh, some, many of the, the, the bodies were coming back uh, or, or stories were coming back of the loss of uh, brothers and sons and, and husbands uh, to a wonderful uh, portrait in Catherine Tynan's uh, one of her uh, memoirs uh, about attending a church, a mass and she recounts how more and more of the women were dressed in black uh, the war had hit the intellectual Catholic middle class uh, at a way that was now being ritually shown and explored, seen. So, if that's the number who were involved in uh, war, what about the rather grim story of how many died? Well, I've uh, the good fortune in Trinity that the leading uh, military historian, uh, John Thorne, is just up uh, the next corridor. And um, uh, I, I can kind of persecute him from time to time. Uh, he makes the point that historians disagree on the precise figure. But by the time the war was over, some, and you can see the latitude here that's required, 
some 27,000 to 35,000 Irish soldiers were dead. Um, only a, a, a few months ago, uh, the, in a letter in the Irish Times, these numbers were being uh, rethought again. Uh, some people are saying it's 35,000. Uh, I mean, how long is a piece of string? It's, it's one of these rather grim statistical uh, concerns. But just to give you a ballpark figure um, of the volume of men who were in the war and the number who didn't come out of it is, I think, significant in its own way. Now, um, the war in Ireland had very different political impact than it did here. Um, um, the complications uh, came fairly hot and heavy. Uh, 1916, the Easter Rising uh, taking place in exactly the same time, uh, the same period as the Somme. And those two things then would become the icons of two different traditions. 1916, the moment of uh, Catholic Republican uh, liberation, the beginning of it. Uh, the Somme underpinned, underpinning the Unionist myth. And these two uh, 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 narratives ran for quite some time unchallenged. The complications overshadow, overshadowed the literature and much else. Uh, but for those who experienced life as soldiers during World War I, their story, as I said at the beginning, remained somewhat locked in a cupboard. Um, I've just given you a very, very simple uh, 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 handout of some poems by some of these writers, um, including, for instance, uh, we've heard uh, Tom Kettle, Thomas Kettle mentioned, uh, a nationalist uh, uh, economist and uh, uh, MP in Westminster, as was Stephen Gwynne, uh, an intellectual, a nationalist MP as well, both middle class, uh, very important in their own intellectual milieu, uh, both killed. On the other side, you have Lord Dunsany, a hugely significant uh, uh, figure in the Irish uh, literary firmament, um, great enabler of Irish writers to publish in London, uh, close with Yeats, and kind of Yeats was drawn to him because of the slightly freaky quality of the the kind of Irish Gothic fairy tale tradition that's there in Dunsany. Um, William Orpen, you know the great uh, painter. Um, Thomas Carnduff, who's not in your handout, uh, I don't think, uh, represents uh, the working class Belfast experience. Um, and he went on to become a quite prominent unionist uh, uh, member of uh, the provincial government uh, in, in the north. So there is an interesting little uh, triangulation uh, of two nationalist MPs from the South who didn't make it through the war uh, and one uh, Ulster uh, Unionist uh, working class figure who did. And then we come to um, perhaps the better known and shall we say the better poets. Francis Ledwidge um, 
very important figure uh, re-emerging now at last. Um, fascinating uh, man. Uh, his, his life story is worth a serious scholarly uh, 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 the full short back and sides. Uh, he's an extraordinary figure um, waiting his moment. Patrick McGill um, uh, wrote fascinating memoirs of the great push uh, about his experiences and more um, um, uh, Children of the Dead End a kind of film noir like uh, 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 story of life growing up as a peasant uh, uh, moving to, to, to England to Scotland to earn his, li- his livelihood um, uh, uh, he was hurt and wounded uh, in uh, World War I uh, Ledwich as you know didn't make it and then other interesting people um, the Belfast man C.S. Lewis not unknown to this environment um, uh, his poems uh, uh, as a soldier poet uh, are, are well worth uh, uh, checking out um, it's almost as if he was bending under the, the, this, this seeming tension between his intellectual self trying to rationalise what was happening to him and his outrage is what he was experiencing and seeing that kind of almost paradigm of uh, the soldier poets Winifred Letts uh, whose poem there dead uh, uh, can sit quite confidently and comfortably if that's the word in any anthology of war poetry uh, a nurse uh, f- a very interesting woman in her own uh, liberal life as an activist um, alongside people like Catherine Tynan May Sinclair and others um, sometimes I think the women are much more politically upfront than the men uh, in this period of time you know, the women took the lead politically um, but then when war was over they seemed to step back into the role that had been prepared for them that may be uh, another issue but the one I'm particularly interested in and the one who gives a po- who, whose poem uh, a nocturne gives the title to the anthology is Thomas McGreevy now Thomas McGreevy is a fascinating figure grew up in Kerry on the west coast of Ireland joined the civil service uh, the British civil service uh, did quite well and ultimately joined um, uh, the Royal uh, Field Artillery where he was uh, had a distinguished career he was wounded twice um, but he's probably best known as often is the case not by what he did but who his friends were and he was he was the mediating presence between Joyce, between Beckett and Joyce and if you read Beckett's letters those that matter most to him uh, are those that he wrote to McGreevy. Um, McGreevy is a fascinating figure. Uh, I was talking to somebody last night about his, he wrote uh, a wonderful little book on T.S. Eliot, slightly sour book, but fascinating. But it's his book about Richard Aldington, uh, which is supposedly a portrait or a study. 
In that Dolphin series that Chatter and Windus published, Beckett wrote his and Proust. Uh, it's a lovely little series. If you ever see them up for sale, nab them. They're great. Uh, uh, but it's, um, it's uh, uh, that short little study of Richard Allington that is actually a, mo a war memoir. And it's so revealing of what it must have been like to come back from war to your home place, which was then entering into war. How difficult is that? And in fact, the war that he was entering into, Ireland, was against the very people whose uniforms he had worn. Now, if that's not screwing you up, if that's not creating a kind of psychic division, it certainly would produce tensions, which ultimately led, I think, to this man to stop writing. He stopped writing poems uh, in the late 30s. And for 15, 20 years, those poems didn't come. And I think that was a trauma of having to return to an environment. He went to Trinity uh, in 1919. And from there, the national struggle kicked off. Not from Trinity, but uh, in Dublin, it kicked off. And for the next two and a half, three years, he was witnessing uh, British army units on the streets in uniforms that he would have been saluting. Very strange. Very, very strange. And it's that destabilizing that I've been trying to uh, draw your attention to. This is his little poem dedicated to a, a pal uh, who died, as you can see, of wounds. Nocturne. I labour in a barren place, alone, self-conscious, frightened, blundering. Far away, stars wheeling in space. About my feet, earth voices whispering. I can hear Beckett in there uh, uh, of Echo's Bones. Go back to Stuart's uh, point about um, T.E. Holm and the Imagists. I think he was spotting or riding on some current uh, there as well. Um, it would take me a full lecture just to address Yeats in his own right. But Yeats had form. He had form about being anti-war poetry-ish. He reacted to Sean O'Casey when Sean O'Casey, uh, uh, I mean, the poem that's there uh, on, uh, of Yeats's on being asked for a war poem was originally titled A Reason for Keeping Silent. Um, and as he said himself, it is the only thing I have written on the war or will write. So it's the judicious Yeats. I'm stepping back. Now, I think some critics make the mistake of detaching Yeats from the politics of the time. And Yeats had the antennae to know things were getting trouble back at home. So I'm going to step back and just not get involved here until I see the way things pan out. There was a smartness and an almost critical intuitiveness in Yeats that he could weave his way through different situations. But underlying that 
there was this uh, dislike, constitutionally dislike, this dislike of people being sentimental. Um, and if you look at the letter, I really haven't got time to go into it. Uh, uh, it's not in your handout. Check out uh, Yeats's letter to Sean O'Casey of the 20th of April, 1928. He doesn't even refer to him as his accepted name. Sean O'Casey, uh, Sean O'Casada was John Casey. Working class, uh, upper working class Dublin boy. Uh, but Yeats, and he was known globally by this time as Sean O'Casey. What does Yeats refer to him? My dear Casey. Uh, but that letter, he, uh, uh, he rejects in this letter O'Casey's World War I play, The Silver Tassie. And it's the same but different. It's the same principle by which he would ultimately reject uh, Wilfred Owen. But don't, don't, ever, don't ever forget, he didn't reject all war poets in that 1936 uh, anthology of modern verse. There are actually quite a few in there, including Thomas McGreevy. Um, uh, and if you uh, want to bother going back to the text itself, it's section 15 of that notorious introduction where he talks about, I mean, he, he says, I have a distaste for certain poems written in the midst of the Great War. Oh, holy pololi, Yeats doesn't like it. The world is collapsing, but I have a certain distaste. Uh, and then off he goes. Um, I have rejected these poems for the same reason that made Arnold, uh, Matthew Arnold withdraw his Empedocles on Etna from circulation. Passive suffering is not a theme for poetry. Bum bum. In all the great tragedies, tragedy is a joy to the man who dies. Ask Isaac Rosenberg that. Ask Wilfred Owen that. So you, we're in different intellectual and emotional territory here. Um, in Greece, the tragic chorus danced. So Yeats is totally taking a completely different view on what poetry and war the connections between the two. If war is necessary or necessary in our time and place, it is best to forget its suffering as we do the discomfort of fever. Now he went on like this, uh, 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 and uh, I, I won't upset you too much with reading more of that. Um, uh, uh, I mean, he, he talks in a wonderful letter to Dorothea Wellesley uh, about literally every beat of the seals of the anthology. Uh, the anthology was hugely controversial. It sold in droves. Oxford uh, were delighted. They kept on uh, uh, you know, buzzing him up for more. And if you read these letters on poetry uh, from Yeats to Dorothy Wellesley, I mean, it's, it, uh, as John Stallworth quoted it uh, 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 earlier on, uh, this very strange phrase he has. Where is it? Um, um, when I excluded Wilfred Owen, whom I consider unworthy of the poet's corner of a country newspaper, I did not know I was excluding a revered sandwich board man of the revolution, and somebody has put his worst and most famous poem in a glass case in the British, uh, in the British uh, Museum. He is all blood, dirt, and sucked sugar stick. 
I no idea what, why Owen should be called sucked sugar stick. It's abominable. He calls poets bards and a girl a maid and talks about titanic wars. You know, dear me, where's the sherry? Um, so uh, this goes on. Uh, Roy Foster's wonderful biography uh, identifies the reaction uh, uh, to the anthology. It's already been alluded to. Uh, the, the establishment welcomed it with certain kinds of reservations, particularly Yeats's predilections for ladies. Uh, uh, I mean, technically, ladies. Um, and uh, his, uh, his un uncertainty with the, the, the young thrusters of the 30s, uh, who are there. C.D.A. Lewis is there, uh, and so on. Uh, but just to, 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 to be clear about this, Julian Bell is there, Edmund Blunden is there, Rupert Brooke is there, J uh, Julian Grenfell is there, C. Day Lewis is there, Thomas McGreevy is there, Herbert Reed is there, Siegfried Sassoon is there, and Edward Thomas is there. So, in a way, you have to take some of this stuff with a pinch of salt. Yeats was uh, mixing and matching. So, I'm on my time, damn it. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to fast forward uh, to um, this poem. I hope I'm doing the right thing here now. Yeah. Um, and I'll finish on this. And I just recommend you read uh, Paul Murray's Skippy Dies because uh, I've run out of time. Uh, and particularly that wonderful ending where he's talking about uh, the teacher is confronting the headmaster. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So let's come to a conclusion with uh, this poem of Seamus Heaney's In Memoriam Francis Ledwich. Um, the monument that uh, was up on the screen behind uh, my, uh, when I was talking is the monument from Port Stewart that this poem is about. Uh, Keith Jeffrey, who's written a wonderful book, uh, one of the breakthrough books actually in 2000, Ireland and the Great War, uh, identifies the fact that that monument does not have what this poem says it has. And I think that's, there's a lesson there. Poets write poems. Historians write history. And there's a hyphen that you have to tread over very carefully, minesweep it. Um, this poem, if memory serves me right, was included in Fieldwork, and Fieldwork was published in 1979. So we're coming towards the end of that mysterious time as Ireland, north and south, is beginning to repossess imaginatively its own history. Um, and then push that, place that uh, uh, history in front of a wider audience. Ledwich uh, was uh, an extraordinary figure, as I think I've already said, and his life has become, in a way, iconic, a word I don't like, but it has become iconic as a, a radical nationalist, socialist, trade union activist who donned the British uniform because he felt uh, we had to and it was the only way to defend 
Belgium. It was the only way to protect the rights of small nations. So Seamus imagines uh, his own. There's a kind of stepping back through time here. And uh, it does have the feel, this poem, of being a testament. Somebody used the word, I think it was Stuart actually, about testimony. There is a sense of testimony about this poem. The bronze soldier hitches a bronze cape that crumples stiffly in imagined wind. No matter how the real winds buff and sweep his sudden hunkering run, forever craned over Flanders, helmet and haversack, the gun's firm slope from butt to bayonet, the loyal fallen names on the embossed plaque, it all meant little to the worried pet I was in 1946 or 7, gripping my Aunt Mary by the hand along the Port Stewart prom, then round the crescent to thread the castle walk out to the strand. The pilot from Coleraine sailed to the coal boat, courting couples rose out of the dunes. A farmer, stripped to his studs and shiny waistcoat, rolled the trousers down on his timid shins. Francis Ledwich, you courted at the seaside beyond Drogheda one Sunday afternoon. Literary, sweet-talking, countrified, you peddled out the leafy road from Slain, where you belonged, among the dolorous and lovely, the May altar of wild flowers, Easter water sprinkled in outhouses, mass rocks and hilltop rafts and raftered bars. I think of you in your Tommy's uniform, a haunted Catholic face, pallid and brave, ghosting the trenches like a bloom of hawthorn or silence cord from a Boyne passage grave. It's summer 1915. I see the girl my aunt was then, herding on the long acre. Behind a low bush in the Dardanelles, you suck stones to make your dry mouth water. It's 1917. She still herds cows, but a big strafe puts the candles out in Ypres. My soul is by the Boyne, cutting new meadows. My country wears her confirmation dress. To be called a British soldier while my country has no place among nations. You were rent by shrapnel six weeks later. I am sorry that party politics should divide our tents. In you, our dead enigma, all the strains crisscross in useless equilibrium. And as the wind tunes through this vigilant bronze, I hear again the so sure confusing drum you followed from Boyne Water to the Balkans, but miss the twilight note your flute should sound. You were not keyed or pitched like these true blue ones, though all of you consort now underground. Now, that is one of the great poems, I think, of... Uh, it's a war poem. It's not by a war poet. But I'll leave you with that. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>